Inside Voices United. I want that song. I don't want to die. I want that song. I don't want to die. I'm your host, Greg Smith. And welcome back to our conversation about the stories behind the stories of Inside Voices United. I'm joined by my friend Ali Sharif, product director for TuneCore. Hi, Ali. Hey, Greg. Nice to be here. So let, let's finish this process. Good. Right? So we, uh, we listen to the songs, mm-hmm. writer's workshop, right? and then you leave. And then I leave. You say you're going to be gone for two months. Yeah. Right? And then you come back two months later. Yes. Or thereabouts. Yes. And then, and then how do you come back? What do you come back with? Who do you come back with? And Good. then what's the process of, that, of, of now recording those songs that they've worked on? Right. Perfect. So um, I've got a couple of pals um, here in Savannah who no sound and no recording. Um, and I've got some gear. So I pulled together, you know, a bunch of microphones and a couple of recorders and brought these two guys in. Uh, the two guys in the project were Bob Duncan and Byron Childs. Bob's an old um, uh, friend who has been in broadcasting and recording for low these many years, 30 plus years. And Byron is new. He's, uh, in fact, he was one of my grad students in college here in Savannah. Um, I just really wanted to know more about the process and was one of those standout students and stayed in touch with me. Um, I should also say that about a year ago, I um, stepped out of teaching after 16 years so that I could do this project full time. And a lot of my students stay in touch with me. They send me emails. How you doing? Uh, here's, could you look at my resume? And can you help me? And so once your teacher, always your teacher. So Byron stayed in touch. And I said, well, you know, it's, you know, we were talking about something else. And I said, I've got this project. And, you know, we need someone to do a live mix. And he had done some of that. And I knew I could teach him the parts he didn't know. So it was a matter of pulling from my own inventory of gear. And that was probably about a dozen microphones. Um, a mixer, uh, a couple of, um, and a mixer is, is basically a laptop these days with, um, you know, Pro Tools or GarageBand or Avid or whatever, whatever your, your platform is. Pro Tools is the most um, uh, common one in the professional world, which is what we're recording on right now. It's in my studio. So we had a version of Pro Tools on a computer. Do you have mixers that the microphones plugged in, plug into? There's something called an A to D converter because microphones are analog and the recorder's digital. So it's just the gear and cables and mic stands and stuff. And so we went into the music room and set up our microphones. And um, I should talk a little bit about the process of recording. When you record, before I go further down that road, when you record something uh, for an album, you start, again, there's a formula, learn the rules, then break them, but the formula that I follow in most musicians in professional studios is something like this, where you figure out the beat. What's the click? You know, how fast does it go? Um, the basic beat is 120 beats per minute. If it's a little slower, a little faster, you can program what's called a click track. And a click track is just that. It plays in your headphone at whatever rhythm, whatever beat you want it to. And it accents, if it's a four beat thing, it accents the first beat. Boom, two, three, four. Beep, two, three, four, three, two. And so you figure out the beat first. The second thing you do usually in a recording studio is you go to a separate track and you record the drums. Now if it's an analog set, meaning the kind that we, you know, that makes noise when you hit it, um, there could be as many as eight or 12 microphones on, microphone on every drum and one on every cymbal. Now we have electronic drum kits and you can through MIDI and um, musical 
Musical instrument, digital, digital interface. interface. Yeah, there you go. I always get that. Um, and a lot of drum sets are are, uh, are digital, and you can put those directly in. But that's a second track for the drums. Or if it's 12 microphones on the drums, that's the next 12 tracks. Now we're up to 13 with the click track. Then you put down maybe the bass guitar, which follows the kick drum quite often, and that's a 14th track. Then you put down a rhythm guitar, 15th track. You put down a second rhythm guitar, 16th. And you put down maybe four or five guitars. Then you put down a piano, an acoustic piano, like a you know baby grand. Then you put down some other keyboards with uh, synthesizers. And each one of those keyboards and pianos, those are stereo tracks. Then you can bring in harmony singers, and they sing the harmony. Everybody's on their own track. And then the lead singer, and he, sings, he or she sings the lead vocal. Then maybe another guitar track for the solo. So we're bumping up to, conservatively, you know, 20, 25 tracks. that's the ideal, right? That's the ideal. Okay. <laughs> and you do them one at a time. Why? And this is the, my seminar to our listeners here. Uh, and again, I know a lot of you know this, but you do that so that you have control over the tracks. If you are listening back to the drums, for instance, and there are eight microphones on, you know, there's a snare and there are three toms and there's a kick drum, there's a hi-hat over here, there are three cymbals, you have a separate mic on each, they're going to leak into each other's mic, but you can control them a little bit and you can turn, if the snare, if the drummer didn't hit the snare quite hard enough for your liking, you can turn up just the snare without turning everything up. So it helps. And if the tone is a little bit wrong, you exactly. can correct that. Perfect. Make it exactly. sit in with the rest of the drums. Yep. 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 So same thing with the bass. Uh, if the bass wasn't, if the uh, if the guy played it a little too hard, you can turn it down a little bit, and you can you know take every individual track and you can tweak them. And you do in the recording process in a studio like the one we're in, you can go through and and fix each track with a little bit of EQ, maybe it's got a little bit of reverb on it, maybe a bit of flange or phasing or whatever you want to do to color the tracks. And then you, when you mix them all together and you're listening to it, and I can't hear that rhythm guitar. Well, you can turn it up on channel 14 just a little bit, you know? And that's the, that's the mixing process. Okay, so that's how you're supposed to do it, right? right? So, okay. now, so how do we do it here? Here we are in prison. So we walk in and we're in this room. And the one thing you don't want to do is record everybody at once. And the reason you don't want to do that is because if the drums are playing loud and he hits the snare, there's another microphone, you know, not too far away, which is on the guitar amp, but it's going to hear that, that snare over there because microphones are dumb. Microphones don't know not to listen to the snare. I'm a guitar amp mic, so I'm not going to listen to any other mics. They, you get crosstalk, you get bleed. From various things the singer's singing really loud you're going to hear that on the the bass amplifier mic or maybe on the mic over the drum set so the challenge in that 25 by 25 cinder block hard linoleum floor which right away is very reverberant so any sound you do make bounces off the walls you have to move things away from each other um, they used to do recordings years ago in mono before the land of stereo which really kind of came into its own during the 60s. It was invented before that, but really in recording studios in the 60s and in the 70s. And, and everyone was in the same room playing at the everyone same time, the same and, and there was bleed. That's it. And when Frank Sinatra would show up, this is always the, the example I would give, when Frank Sinatra would show up in the 40s or 50s and he would sing um, in front of a full orchestra, he was singing in front of the full orchestra. So if you know the trumpet player was too loud, the conductor would say, okay, take two steps back, you know, literally move back from the microphone. They would move people with proximity because everything was being mixed to mono. So everything had to be balanced 
during the live recording. And if the trumpet player, while Frank is singing, plays a bad note, he's screwed. <laughs> Frank gives him that look with a fedora, and that guy's you know working in Burger King the next yeah. day. Okay. Less about fix it in the mix. We, exactly. we have to fix it now. You cannot fix it in the mix. Okay. So we don't record bands live. But here we are. And the things I was, the two things I was fighting, or I had to deal with, I wasn't fighting, I was dealing with. One was um, uh, the fact that it was a very live room. A live room is like your shower, because it's all hard tile. And sound hits it and bounces off and creates this reverb that you don't want. Um, the other issue, um, well, I'll get to that later, but, but basically that, that was the biggest issue that we had. Uh, well, the other issue was time. And I didn't have enough time to record. Again, I was trying to get, and when we went back to record, and I'll talk about that in a second, we ended up recording 15 songs or 14 songs in a testimony. Um, and I didn't have the time to individually multi-track every single track. That would have been the best way to do it, but that would have taken, for 15 songs, get out of town. That would have taken a, a week to 10 days, two weeks, easy. Yeah. Okay. And I wanted this project to be more... SWAT team parachutes in, we do our thing, and then we get out in, all in one day. Sure. It's an important part of the process for them as well. And you can also hear it in the, in the project. It, there's an organic nature to yes. it. Yes, and that's, the re that's one of the positive reasons to record it all at the same time. And there are bands out there that insist on being recorded live. I think Van Halen, just to go back, and was one of those bands who liked to record everything in the same room, if I'm not mistaken. Then there were you know, the Beatles, uh, you know, some of the greatest musicians ever. Um, a lot of their early stuff was recorded live. And they recorded on these, you know, mono to mono to mono and bounced them back and forth. Very tedious process until the Beatles weren't multi-track into the last couple of yeah, albums. A lot so of I'd what say. we hear in the old Motown yes. music was all The Funk all Brothers recorded. up That's in right. Motown and, right. and Barry Gordy and all that group up there and then the Wrecking Crew down in L.A. And this was all mono. They were all playing at the same time. So not only did the musicians have to be on, they had to know their parts Remember my trumpet player got yelled at by Frank Sinatra. That's the same thing with these guys. So they had to be all together, and I would only have one shot. And I told them this when I left after the seminar. I'm going to come back and record you. Rehearse, 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 because I'm only going to give you one take. Now, I wasn't going to give them only one take, but I wanted them to put, feel put the, the pressure. Put the pressure on, yeah. I wanted them to feel a little pressure. This is what... This is what I go through when I'm called in as a session player, when I go to somebody else's studio. I want to make sure I've done my homework because there's an old saying, which is you don't rehearse in the studio. You record in the studio. Time you is perform. money. Time is money. And, you know, there was no money on the line here, but time was time. Time's a very interesting thing in the whole prison conversation we're having anyway. So I knew that I was going to have one shot. So they were going to play as a, a full band. So the technical side of it is I had to move things away as best I could. I put the singer way over here, and I you know, put up a music stand and put a blanket on the back of it. There's something uh, in recording studios called a gobo. I think it's G-O-B-O, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm not mistaken. And basically, it's a, usually it's a four-by-eight sheet of fabric, and you kind of they're movable, and they're on little stands, and you can sort of build a, something around a singer over in the corner and then put an amp behind one. It helps to kind of trap the sound and minimize the crosstalk between the mics. Yeah, and dampen some of the reflections. And dampen some of the reflections. Again, in a recording studio, you're working with a room that's carpeted and is treated on the walls. Again, we're in prison, cinder blocks, linoleum, blah, blah, blah. So I knew that we were going to only have one take, maybe two. I was going to allow three if it had to be. Because I, you know, I, was, I was intent on making it work. Um, 
but actually uh, it, it worked out pretty well. The other thing we did was uh, they had a, and I call it an analog drum set. Those are the kinds of drums that you hit it and you can hear it in the room as, a, as opposed to an electronic set. So um, what I did was I borrowed an old trick and I didn't make any of this up. I'm stealing heavily from other people. But this is where you would take, um, uh, uh, you know, blankets or towels. And I had found pieces of fabric. I, I said, have you got an old bed sheet around? And he found me a bed sheet. Great. And I ripped it up right in front of him. They love that. And, and we ripped it up and put a sheet on, uh, you know, a piece of sheet on top of the snare drum and on each of the tom-toms. So it deadened it just a little bit so it wouldn't reverberate as much. Even put one down on the kick drum. Um, so we were able to do that. And the singers, I made sure that they were singing at each other. So the microphones would be pointed in different directions. If the microphones are pointed in the same directions, you can get phasing problems. So we were trying to um, take the practical and the technical and mm -hmm. marry the two of them to be able to get a good recording. Now, how many songs were you recording? Uh, it was originally 20 that we went through with the first seminar, but by the time I came back, um, six of the inmates had been released. And I'll talk more about the release in prison versus jails in a second, but um, we ended up recording 14 songs, and one of the guys, um, uh, a guy named Harry Lied, and he's one of the podcast episodes, he wrote a song called My God is Able. And he, at the beginning of it, he said, well, I have a testimony. I said, no kidding. He said, yeah, I want to read this. And it was a two-minute story of how he came to write the song. And I said, sure, go for it. So he sat there, and Harry's got a, you know, kind of a southern kind of voice, and it's kind of deep and gravelly. I can't even pretend to get down as low as he did. Um, and so we started, we rolled the tape, and I cued him, and he started off and said, I have a testimony. And it was just, <laughs> and it was like, I got chills. And the next two minutes, he takes you on this real, uh, by truth uh, and emotion, of where he had been, no excuses for his behavior. Uh, he had missed, you know, w watching his son and daughter grow up, who both had serious medical problems, but he prayed for them and they got better. And one of them is a New York City firefighter today. It's just, his voice was so believable and commanding. And I was like, wow. So actually in the podcast and on the album, I have the testimony separate. And you hear that in the podcast episode where it starts with a testimony. And then, um, and I'll talk more about the interviews at the end of the, our session here. Um, and so um, we ended up doing 14 songs. And how long did it take to get through to 14? Uh, four hours, something like that. And we did most of them were in one take. And here was the interesting thing. When I went back, I was expecting what I saw in the um, seminar part of it, where they came down, sat on the stool, got the guitar, played the song, and I gave them a critique, and they went away, and the keyboard guy came up and played his song, and I gave him some stuff and went away. Um, we weren't able to go back after two months. There were a series of, there was a, a security incident at the prison, uh, which I can't talk about. Um, there was also uh, COVID, which is uh, a real problem in prisons, and they've had several outbreaks. So that shut it down for several months. So we weren't able to go back until April, it was about six months later. They used the time. When I came back, nobody was sitting on a stool and singing a guitar. They had formed a house band, which shocked me. And it's like, wow. And so they ran through the songs. And these were now from like demos they were doing for me on a stool. These were fully realized songs. They had taken the information that I had given them and 
you know, change their songs accordingly here and there. Again, it was just little nip and tuck on my behalf for their songs. But they had, you know, there were keyboard parts and there was a bass part, there was a solo somebody had written, there were background vocals, and they, these were all fully formed songs. Wow, so they were really diligent about... about really yeah. diligent, yeah. They which, which brings me to another question, which yeah. is what sort of inmates do you, do you work with? Are you looking for that level of diligence when you go in? Can you see that? Yes, you can see it. You can see it right away. And that's why I told them at the beginning of the seminar, if you don't believe it, if you don't make me believe it, why should anybody believe it? You have to believe what you're singing. You have to believe in your art. You have to, if you're a writer, you've got to believe in the words in the page. Or, it's, or why should anybody else if you don't believe it? If you're just going through the motions. And there are, you know, there are lots of um, authors out there who shall remain unnamed for this podcast, in my own opinion, who are just phoning it in because they've been doing it for years and they've got dozens of books and there's a formula and they stick to the formula. And if you like that formula, that's great. But, you know, all of these, all of these different genres and all these emotions, if they didn't believe it, and I could tell if they were phoning it in, even in the seminar that we did. And so you're I, looking for, in these, in, in these inmates, you're looking for authenticity. Yes. You're looking for a unique voice. Yes. You're looking for a level of musicality? That's a really good question. That's something, um, again, when they sat on the stools for me and played their stuff, I'm making mental notes. Well, this guy hasn't got a great voice. But again, it's a, it's a true voice. And I was, you know, raised in Catholic school, and so I was in the choir, and Sister Gabrielle had this long ruler. <coughs> she had a yardstick, and if we hit a bad note, she would just say, hand, and we'd put, and I'm nine years old, for Christ's sake, you know, and I'd put my hand out and whack with the, you know, she, could, she had good reach with that yardstick, and you didn't miss that note the next time. Well, I wasn't going to whack anybody, but it, it taught me uh, harmony, and it taught me precision, as, and I made part of my living as a professional musician. These aren't professional musicians. And so I, going in, I knew that. But I have to tell you, Ali, I was really surprised when I went back and they had formed the house band with this stuff. I was really surprised at how professional these songs were, how professional they had played them, how seriously they had took their rehearsal. And there's some musicianship there. And I didn't want to tell anybody this, any of the musicians, um, but you know, I would use them in my own studio, but I didn't tell them that because I'm uh, honestly, you have to keep a distance yes. between their lives and yours. And if they get out, um, you know, I'm moving around. I've got other musicians that I work with and stuff. If somebody were to contact me that I worked with, of course I would, you know, talk with them and blah, blah, blah. But I, I don't want to make that part of the project. Sure. I don't want to make a promise. That's another thing they teach you. And I had to go through, to get into the prison in the first place, I had to go through a training seminar at the GDC up in Forsyth, Georgia. And it's a long, all-day seminar. And you go and they teach you what to do and security things and blah, blah, blah. And one of the things they teach you is, um, and this is to, to get your permanent card so I can walk in any prison in Georgia now. But one of the things they 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 stress in their seminars and it stuck with me is don't make any promises you can't keep because that's all they've got and if I say I'm coming back I'm coming back if I say you can contact me on the outside then you can but I don't want that right now because that's not what the project's about and that gets complicated yeah frankly so, so I take it all of these mm -hmm. were men right not not women. yeah it's a men's prison okay it's a men's prison yeah 
And how did you get them ready for uh, for the process of recording? I, I take it that none of them have recorded in a studio a few, before? A, a couple had been in a studio, but most of them hadn't. Mm-hmm. Most of them hadn't. And there's no way really to And how'd that. they take to it? Um, again, uh, what you do, what I did, my role was I brought in two guys, the two guys I mentioned, who were in charge of the microphones and the mixing and recording, sitting off on, on a table with their headphones on. I was the producer during that session. Once I helped them get all the microphones set up and we did test recordings and stuff, then we brought them in, you know, one at a time, meaning the one singer at a time, and the personnel on the, uh, on the, the, uh, the band changed, the house band, you know, different keyboard players, same drummer, different bass players. But I took on the role of producer. And the producer stands in the middle of the room, as you well know, but for the uninitiated who may be listening, uh, the job of a producer is to help the musician tell their story in the best way. And so, you know, you are responsible, especially we put on top of that, um, I have to um, work in real time with my engineers that the bass is too loud or I can hear the background singers through the lead vocal mic. So, you know, there was some shifting around of that. But I would also give them the count off. And we were doing this, this is the other thing too, we're doing this without a click track. When we talked about the process earlier in this conversation, there's the click track, and uh, that makes sure, uh, you know, the two things you want in a professional recording in a studio, it's got to be uh, uh, in time and in tune. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, it's just going to be a mess down the road. And typically, uh, the big cardinal sin that is uh, committed in a studio without a click track, it starts at a certain tempo and it speeds up because your adrenaline's going, you're racing to the end of the song. So it's a problem in professional recording. It was a problem there. I chose not to have a click track because that would have meant, along with the dozen mics that I had around the room and the, you know, typically about eight musicians, I would have had to have 10, 12, 14 sets of headphones. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole nother level of gear. I was trying to get all the gear that I carried in was in two big Pelican cases. A Pelican is a sort of an oversized, well, they come in different sizes, but an oversized hard plastic uh, container about the size of a a suitcase on steroids. And it's made to ship gear. And so I wanted to get everything in just two cases to take them into the the studio to do the recording. Now, I've had the pleasure of hearing a project and and was blown away. Um, Mm. You let me hear it before it was mixed. You let me hear Mm -hmm. it after it was mixed. It was blown away. How did you... Select the theme song. Tell me about the theme song. Ah, the theme song was cool. The theme song was one of the songs that um, was uh, that we recorded, and it was a song. And I didn't plan for it to be the theme song. It's written by a guy named Francois Mingo, and um, in fact, he's one of the episodes, uh, podcast episodes, um, which you can listen to. And I tell the story in there as well. But the short recounting of it is, he was. Um, and I'll give you a preview of it. He was knew that I was coming in. This is before I came in in the first place. And this was when the prison was going through and through the chaplain, a guy named uh, Theodore Valcourt. And Ted Valcourt was um, amazing. And, and um, I want to shout out to him because he's the one who helped choose the musicians. And he was aided by a guy named Caesar who is in charge of the music program there. Uh, he's a staff member. And um, they chose the 20 musicians. Francois was one of them because he had written a song. And he told me later on, he had written a song, but he didn't like the song he'd written. And so he was lying in his bunk in his cell um, the night before I came in and said, you know, he was praying to God. And he said, he said this out loud. He said, I, I need a song. 
you know, come on, Lord, come on, God, give me a song. This is important. He understood the importance of it, of the project. This is going to be his shot. So um, he uh, sat in his bunk and said, I want this song. I want that song. I want that song. He kept saying that over and over and suddenly realized he had a title. And he got his pen and paper there next to his bunk and started writing. And wrote. The, I think he wrote the thing the night before we came in. Mm. And uh, I think he used music from another song that he had, but these were the, the new lyrics. And the song, it starts off with him saying, I want that song. It's, it's a, and we use it to open all the podcasts, and it's the thing that ends it. It's sort of the bookends each podcast. And the song is just, again, it's emotional. It shows real and musical intelligence and comp- intelligence and composition. He talks about um, different countries. It's ha- this is happening in Germany and in China and around the world. And people are brothers. It talks about brotherhood and it talks about, you know, understanding each other. Um, and he kind of just melds it all together as, as a good songwriter does, where he takes disparate elements and centers them around. Again, this is the purpose of a good, uh, of a good chorus, which is I want that song. Now, how do you answer critics who may look at you and say, uh, you know, this sounds great, but, you know, pr- prison is a place for punishment. And it seems like this is a reward for, uh, for the inmates. And then secondarily, how do you answer the voices of, uh, of those who may have been wronged by um, yeah. some of those prisoners and, and, and look at this as, as a reward for uh, in the face of their grief? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's something that I, <clears throat> once I came up with the idea, I wrestled with it because uh, I wanted to refine it before I moved forward with it. And I thought a lot about that, which is, you know, prison is a place of punishment. Um, and I, just a side note here is I decided to work with prisoners, um, uh, people in prison, rather than people in jail. Because as it's been explained to me, and I could be wrong about this, um, I could be oversimplifying, but my understanding of it, at least it is in this part of Georgia, which is jail is two years or less and prison is two years or more. I didn't want to deal with people in jail because they were going to be out. And I knew that this was going to be a project where I needed to build in time where they would have... Um, uh, time to work on their songs and then t- uh, and rehearse them and me to come back and that's tough to do in jail and jails are also more chaotic because people are coming and going all the time people in prison you know they're uh, in, in fact a lot of the inmates that you hear the songs uh, these guys are in for quite a while there are a couple are, are short timers and they're going to be out in a couple of years but and it's funny time has a very it's very subjective in prison there's one guy who came up to me and um, and one of the things I also learned in my training is you don't ask them what they're in for and how long they've got on their sentence. That's a no-no. You just don't ask them. Um, but people would share sometimes, not, not what they did, but mostly uh, about getting out. And uh, one guy said, yeah, you know, I really wanted to get this done because I'm getting out soon. I said, oh, when are you getting out? And he said, four years. And to them, that's soon, you know. And a bunch of the other guys are lifers. Um, so, you know, they're in there for a reason. And I'm not there to question it. I'm not there to glorify it. Um, and in prison, everything, in a way, that's not behind bars in your cell is a reward. Everything. Uh, the privilege to work in the prison shop. Um, the privilege to go into the yard and play basketball or feel the sun in your face. Uh, the privilege to play music. You know, not everybody gets to go to the music hall and uh, uh, music room and pull down an instrument and play. Not, And they have a gym. You can't. If you have um, made trouble in the prison, you know, they cut off the privilege of playing basketball. They got a basketball league. Um, D 
different things like that, you know, right down to solitary confinement. But um, I'm not in the business of rewarding or punishing these people. This is how I sort of got to where I'm at. Um, but it does go back to the sort of the throwaway um, mentality that we have about prisoners. They're in prison. They're there. Thank God they're there. I don't have to think about them. I agree with half of that, <laughs> um, which is that, you know, they are there, but I think I do have to think about them. I think we as a society have to think about them. We can't pretend that they're not there um, because that dehumanizes them. It makes them less than uh, human beings. And these are guys who have done wrong. And like I say, they're in there for a reason. I don't, I'm not saying, oh, let's have a song, let's open the doors. No, they're, they're there and they should be there uh, for most of them. Again, I don't know why they're there, but if someone commits a heinous crime, they should be in prison and for a long time. Um, but this is not about that. This is about recognizing that these guys, and again, this is a men's prison, we're also going to expand the project to women's prisons in the future. But for this prison, a men's prison, um, they're, they're doing their time, and they've been given a sentence, and they um, live on a different clock than we live. Um, and, but they are still human beings. And, and are they compensated uh, monetarily for, no. for this work? No. The idea is to put it up. Um, I put it up on my website, and there's no monetary compensation whatsoever. I didn't want. I thought about that as well. It's one of the things I ran through my head. I didn't want to put it on a platform that pays you five cents a play or something like that because that, to me, was a reward. And if someone's in there for, I don't know, beating up a guy, you know, uh, the guy who got beat up doesn't want that person making money off the story about him being beat up. And that is, makes perfect sense to me. So I wanted to try to find a way to get their voices outside the walls in a way that I didn't attach a monetary reward to it. So the songs are on my website. They're on SoundCloud. Uh, you can find them there. Well, the link it through my website will take you to SoundCloud. And there's no monetary kickback on it whatsoever. Now... One of the most compelling parts of uh, of the project to me was I listened to the songs and and was just blown away by by how what an intense feeling I had um, listening to the voices, listening to the music, listening to the the atmosphere, all of it just kind of really really spoke to me and struck me. But then after that, you did a series of interviews with all of them, um, and I I think I got so much out of out of those interviews it put everything in context in a way that that I did not get from just the songs. Can you tell us about those interviews? Yeah, yeah, and uh, actually you, f you factor into this a little bit. The, uh, after I did the songs themselves, um, it occurred to me that the stories behind the songs were just as interesting. And these are stories they had told me while I was uh, either in the first off seminar that we did where I heard the songs in the beginning or during the recording sessions where they would talk about, um, there's a song that one guy does Forgive me. Hope he forgives me. I can't remember his name. I can see him clear as day. And he wrote a song called Lady of the Night. And this is about a woman who was in and out of his life as he was going through stages of drug addiction, as, as, as I recall. Um, and forgive me if I've gotten that wrong. I don't, I'd have to go back and look. But the point being that um, uh, these, were, um, uh, these were emotions and these were things that, that he was telling his story in a very... Uh, sort of direct way and uh, telling the truth through it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if this is getting to your answer, but but they um, 
there's a lot of uh, truth telling was important to me and to them in getting their story out. Um, and they will always see things through their own prism. And I tried very hard not to get in the way of that process. That was a big part of it to me. And so the songs are the songs as, as they wrote them, as they sang them. Um, I didn't improve. I didn't do any studio magic. Maybe we put a little splash of reverb when we were doing the mixing or this or that. And we compressed them and did some. Uh, we, we went through a process after mixing called mastering which is kind of a glorified EQ and compression where you kind of make it sound like it would be on the radio. It just makes it sound more cohesive. Uh, but that's really it. We didn't, we didn't do any studio tricks to make them sound differently or sound better. Yeah. And then uh, after recording these inmates, after doing these interviews and hearing these stories, what, what sense did you get from them as human beings? Was there regret? was there, you know... Right, right. Yeah, well, the interviews, uh, to get back to that, to your earlier question, that's where that ties in, which is this is what I found out in the interviews. After we did the recording sessions, it was about a week later, and I may have been talking to you because I remember thinking, I need to go back. No, I talked to you after uh, after I did the interviews, and I'll, I'll tell that story in a second. But it occurred to me that they have stories to tell, and no one, I didn't record those stories. So I went back. And I spent 20 years in and out of um, uh, at uh, National Public Radio as a producer, occasionally as a reporter um, and an editor. And so, you know, I knew how to sort of take an interview and cut it up into its essential elements. I thought, that's easy, you know. So I went in and I asked them, each of them, we, we had a separate day about two weeks later, and I went in just with a recorder and two microphones and just me and sat down at a table across from them. And I said, okay, and for everyone, I had two basic questions. How did you get into music? What was your path into music? And the second question was, what is the song about? Mm-hmm. And they started telling me their stories about, there was one guy who told the story about, he had like 30 brothers and sisters because his father kept bouncing around from woman to woman. And so he kept having step brothers and sisters all over the place and um, huge stuff. And then, you know, he took a different path and got, uh, you know, uh, was in, in uh, thrown into prison and, um, you know, owns up for what he did. But, you know, f- as he was telling me the story and at least half of them cried for me. Um, and that was really, um, I mean, talk about raw emotion. And these are guys who, you know, they talk about the, the prisoner who doesn't regret what he did, but regrets that he got caught. I, you know, I, there was a healthy mixture of both. Yeah. Sometimes in the same interview that they were sorry for what they did and they were sorry they got caught, you know. But um, a lot of them just really, the emotion was so raw because I don't know that anyone's ever asked them that question. You know, where does music come from with you? And, uh, you know, and the fact that as they would tell me about their childhood and their introduction to music, they would talk about the fact that they don't have access to that anymore. And that was really kind of the genesis yeah. of what I wanted to do, which was to give voice to those songs that they continue to write in prison. If they were on the outside, you know, they write a song and around the fire pit, a couple of beers come out on a Saturday night and I just wrote a song and here it is and blah, blah, blah. Everyone applauds and they have another beer. In there, they write the song and it's, you know, they play it for somebody else in prison and then it goes on a shelf. There's one guy uh, and he's one of the interviews, a guy named Bobby Joe Riley. And Bobby Joe's a country boy. Uh, I forget where he's from. He told me it's in the it's in the podcast. It's one of our podcasts that's up right now. 
Bobby Joe, I think, has written uh, 120 songs when I first met him. And then in the six-month period between the time we did the seminar and went back, he'd written 30 more. And he showed them to me. He came to the first, the first seminar. I just needed one song from everybody. And he came with this fistful of uh, you know, notebook paper, the kind we you know, use in school, and tiny, tiny little writing, <laughs> and crammed all these songs. And there'd be like three or four songs on one piece of paper on the front and the back, continued on the next thing, and had them all organized. Hundreds, you know, dozens and dozens of songs, not hundreds yet, but still early. He's probably written well over 200 now, but he just keeps writing, and the music pours out of him. And this was the information I was getting in the interviews. And, I, and if I'm getting the, and this next part I may be getting wrong, but I remember having a conversation with you, because you and I talked about, before I went to do the recording, yeah. you were the first ones I played it for, because, um, you know, the, the, our backstory is, you know, we sort of discovered each other. Um, he came down to Savannah, his wife took a job at a local school here, a place I used to teach. And we just kind of made a connection through a mutual friend and found out that we had kind of a musical connection and other things as well. That's right. And so, you know, Ali, you were the first one I played because I needed somebody who was not there who would give me an honest assessment of, you know, well, it's pretty good, but not as good as you think or, or whatever. You would tell me the truth. I, I knew that about you. Um, and I think we got in one of our conversations, I had mentioned the interviews and uh, you have a podcast. And, and um, I said, boy, I could cut these into podcasts really easy, but I have no idea. I know how to cut one. I know what they sound like. I don't know how to get it out in the world. And you said to me on the phone, well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you did. And for our listeners, he's the reason, the person sitting across from me is the reason that it is a podcast because he showed me there's a path. There's a formula. You know, you follow this and you go to this website and you pay a modest fee and you upload it and then... You know, getting a social media and getting people to listen to it is another whole kettle That's of fish. Right. Whole other thing. Whole other thing. But just getting them out there, and that was a light bulb moment, another light bulb moment in this project, which, to me, took it to the next level, because the songs are great, but if you can hear the stories behind them, and in the podcast, you'll hear uh, the interviews and that I've cut down, you know, from the um, from the original. And then we put a bit of the song, just a little teaser of the song inside the interview itself. And if you want to hear the full song, you go to another, you go to my website, um, which I'll give at the end of this thing. Um, you go to the website and um, you can hear the song in its entirety. But the interviews became, an, I just didn't know what I was going to do. I did the interviews before I knew what I was going to do with them. I didn't go in thinking podcast. I went in thinking this has to be preserved because there's one other step and I'm a little ahead of myself, and someone may hear this and say, uh, well, anyway, um, there was a guy named Alan Lomax who back in the 30s and 40s, I think, his father went out and recorded a bunch of musicians, I think up and down the blues highway and the old blues musicians, and um, was the first one to like go out in the field and do field recording. In those days, field recording... Um, recorders were, you know, big enough to put in the trunk of a car. They were huge. And, you know, batter ran it off the battery of the car, as I recall. And his son, Alan, when he was young, would come along and act as assistant engineer. And they would drive from a juke joint to a juke joint and, uh, and you know, um, hear these songs and record them. Sometimes out in the fields, people would, and literally, and you can look it up, the whole Alan Lomax story, but, you know, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think his father literally went out into the cotton fields and recorded people singing a cappella 
and stuff. And this was so inspirational. They took their stuff and their recordings became, and this is where I may have my history a little bit off, so you know, people can check me on this, but um, their music became the genesis of what was the sound recording section of the Library of Congress for musical recordings. Uh, and it occurred to me that the interviews, if I could do interviews in addition to the songs, and this is, I don't want to get the cart ahead of the horse, but I would love for that to end up in the hands of the Library of Congress because those recordings done by Alan Lomax and his dad and recordings done since then of real folk music, this is the story of who we are. And this is the genesis of what I was trying to do here with this project. These are the stories of people who are behind bars. These are their stories. I'm not editing them. This is in their own words, in their own voices, and they're expressing them through song. I mean, that is a national treasure for me. I mean, that's getting lost because, you know, no one's doing it. And I'm not complaining, you know, it's like, I'm just saying I saw it as an opportunity um, that I could maybe play a tiny part in helping to get those voices heard and, you know, by the world and out in the nation. We're doing, we're starting in Georgia um, and we're going to do a couple more prisons in Georgia. Then I'm going to reach out to the surrounding states, probably Tennessee next, and then North Carolina, maybe Alabama, Montgomery. And so I would love to do something there. It, I would love to eventually see this project grow nationwide because if you take it back to its genesis, and this takes us back to your first question, you know, what is it, what am I trying to do? It's to get these voices, inside voices, united and hear the inside voices outside so that we think of these people as human beings, flawed human beings, aren't we all? But human beings nonetheless. Human beings nonetheless. And they've got legitimate stories to tell. And, you know, they write their songs and they put them on their shelves in their cells and they get released or they die and the stories, their songs are lost. So this to me is a national treasure. I mean, wow. If we could build this into something where we can start to channel some of these things to a place like the Library of Congress or I'm always thinking big maybe we can start our own institution of you know sound recording stuff under the umbrella of some other company where you know they could say and, and this is our sound recording division historical sound recording division you know maybe get some somebody else in addition to or um, instead of if the Library of Congress is not interested and I should say I haven't pitched them yet you know but I hope to um, soon but that would be a place that we can then, you know, as we know, once things are on the web, they're there forever. That's right. Okay, so let's make this forever. Let's have them, let's make a record of this stuff. Again, no pun intended. But make a record of it, a historical record, and then it'll be there for everyone to hear, not just their families. Like, And this is what they do, too. They, they like, contact their mom. Where, where can my mom hear this? I, I got that from all of them. Go to my website, and I gave them the website address, which I'll give in a minute. But um, that's the way they connect with their families on the outside. But this is a way, this project is a way that we can take this music and tell the story of the American inmate and the things that they're going through, the things they regret, the things they don't regret, the things they're angry about, the things they cry about, the things that they miss, the people that they love, you know, the, the birth dates that are, have gone by that, you know, they can never get back. And this is, you know, um, and sometimes it's, 
they're in there because of anger. You know, they made a bad choice, uh, got into a fight, or a lot of them are in there for drugs, and they made a bad choice, and they get out and they relapse, and they end up back in prison. So these are real people with real problems, and, you know, we always talk about there, but for the grace of God go I. You know, um, I've never had drug problems, but uh, we've all had challenges in our lives that we, uh, bad habits that we try to break, and sometimes those bad habits are illegal, and that's what ends you up in prison, but, and again, some of these guys are just awful people, not the people that I dealt with, but people in prison, and they're dangerous, but on the other hand, you know, it seems to me the majority of the people that I've had contact with are people that made bad choices. And it's not like a, some guy coming in from the outside and the prisoner's giving me their side of the story and I'm saying, wow, I guess you've had a hard life. You know, it's like, no, I get it. I get it. You know, and I take everything with a grain of salt. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. But the percentages are on my side, which is that majority of them are just looking for, you know, a, a way to do their time and get out and rejoin society and get on with their lives and try to reclaim some of what they've lost. Yeah. The project is called uh, Inside Voices United. It has been my pleasure, Greg, and thank you for inviting me to sit with you on a beautiful Saturday morning in Savannah, Georgia, and have this conversation. Absolutely, and thank you so much for your support of the project, Ali, on a, on a personal level. So it's, um, that means, uh, means a lot to me. From America to China. From China to Germany. For our listeners, I hope this helps. Uh, if you still have questions or comments, uh, you can email me at, through our website or just, it's Inside Voices United, one word, Inside Voices, plural, united at gmail.com. You can also listen to the music um, on my website or the Inside Voices website, which again is insidevoicesunited.org, O-R-G. And you can hear, um, obviously, if you're hearing this podcast, you know where to find your podcast. So I guess I'll have to remind you of that. But now that we have that out of the way, please dive into the material and hear the stories for yourself. And for now, I'm your host, Greg Smith, and this is Inside Voices United. I want that song. I don't want to die. I want that song. I don't want to die. I want that song. I don't want to die. I want that song. Oh, I don't want to die.